This is In Jewish History, a podcast of Indiana Jewish History. My name is Michael Brown, and I'm your host. Hi, everyone. Welcome to In Jewish History, a podcast of Indiana Jewish History. I'm here today uh, to speak with you about... uh, Benjamin Victor Cohen, his life, his experiences, and a little bit about his uh, his background. And uh, joined with us today is uh, is Bill. And uh, Bill, um, if you could tell us a little bit about um, uh, Professor Lasser, uh, is Bill okay, or, or Professor Lasser better? No, Bill is fine. Okay, Bill. Um, so. Looking at Benjamin Victor Cohen, I'm I'm just interested. How did you stumble across him, and how did you become interested in the subject matter? So interestingly enough, there was an article about Ben Cohen many many years ago in the New Republic magazine, and it was about him and his partner. When I say partner, I mean not not so much in a formal sense, but but the person he worked very closely with, Tommy Corcoran, in the, in the New Deal period, they were lifelong friends. And they were both at the time quite elderly, and they wrote an article about this, this, these two men. And I just found, found it very interesting. And so at some point then later, I was asked to write a little encyclopedia article about Cohen. And I had remembered him from that article. And I went looking for a biography to base my little, little encyclopedia article on, and there wasn't one. And I thought, this could be a really interesting project. And, and how did you conduct your research to, to find out the information that you found for your work on Cohen? Well, this was actually a, a very difficult process and very long process because most famous people who would become the subjects of biographies are very careful to collect their letters, their papers, documents together in one place. And Ben Cohen wasn't like that. It's not to say that when other famous people collect their documents, they keep everything or that they don't edit it maybe in a way that might look make themselves look good or something like that. But Ben Cohen just simply had no interest in keeping papers. And consequently, there is there, there exists the Benjamin B. Cohen papers at the Library of Congress. And uh, those were useful, but they were much smaller, much less comprehensive. Than, than what you would find for someone who had similar influence. And so it, it was really necessary to go around collecting his documents from other archives. So, for example, if he wrote letters to someone else, Felix Frankfurter, say those papers would be in the Justice Frankfurter uh, papers. And his papers from his time working on the, uh, in the Zionist movement were all collected at the uh, Jewish Archive in Cincinnati. And so it was a lot of uh, digging, a lot of detective work. I was able to interview a number of people who knew him, although by that time they were quite elderly. And people in general, I don't say this just about people who are older, but people in general don't remember events and facts from decades ago at the level that a biographer really would like them to. They, they have very general and impressionistic and often incorrect 
recollections of the past. So I found the interviews to be really helpful to give me a sense of Cohen and kind of the atmospherics, but there was a lot of just very careful research that, that took place in, in lots of different places. And, you know, just to get an idea of what really drove Cohen and what directed his a lot of his ideas. What was Cohen's childhood like in Muncie, and, and how do you think it affected his later career? He well, first of all, it was quite difficult to come up with a lot of detailed information about his his early life. Again, he wasn't very well known early on. He didn't come from a famous family or anything like that. Uh, so a lot of this again was was sort of pieced together. But but I think the most important thing I would say is that uh, his connection to Muncie was very important to him. And he uh, more generally thought of himself uh, as a Hoosier. He uh, thought of himself as a Midwesterner and kind of as an American. So if you get back to that sort of middle town sense of, of Muncie being the typical American, middle, middle, middle American town, um, Cohen, I think, really valued that sense that he was from that background. He was, of course, Jewish which made him atypical of middle-class Americans in, I'm sorry, middle, middle Americans in that sense. But nonetheless, he, he really had a, an affinity for that. And I think that drove this sense of, 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 of his public spiritedness, of his, of his desire to, to work for the public. I think that must have too been guided by, by Jewish values in his family, although his mother uh, sort of semi-converted to Christian science. She, she didn't abandon Judaism, but she she sort of existed in these two worlds, his father from a more traditional family, and so, or his father from a more traditional perspective. And so I think it, it, it gave him an affinity for Judaism, but it also gave him a very strong sense of, of being an American. And how did Cohen end up in the Roosevelt administration? So he had very deep connections to very important people within the Roosevelt administration, the most important of, of whom was Felix Frankfurter. Felix Frankfurter was his law professor at Harvard in the 19-teens. Cohen attended the University of Chicago, but then he spent a year at Harvard. Frankfurter was, of course, a very dynamic figure even early on. He was uh, active in uh, the government in, during the First World War. And uh, it was Frankfurter who really pulled Cohen into the New Deal, through another person who Cohen knew very well, whose name was Max Lowenthal. Max Lowenthal was a lawyer and investor in the 1920s in New York. Very interesting guy. He made a fortune basically as a bankruptcy lawyer, being a trustee in bankruptcy, which was very lucrative, I guess then and, and I'm sure now. And he used that income to invest. And then he wrote a, a book about how the bankruptcy system makes people make you know, enriches the the wealthy and so he got kind of made a lot of money from his book exposing the activities that he himself had had uh, previously engaged in but uh lowenthal was uh, uh involved in writing the very first legislation which uh, uh or very early legislation in the new deal the securities act of 1933 and he knew cohen because both of them knew a, a federal judge who was a mentor to both of them. And in fact, was Lowenthal's father-in-law as well. And that connection, uh, Frankfurter said, why don't you work with Lowenthal 
on this bill. And that's how it got started. That was in early 1933, even before Roosevelt became president. And then it just was a maelstrom. He just got more and more involved in uh, New Deal projects. In fact, Cohen lived in an apartment in New York, and he moved to Washington temporarily in 1933, and he kept intending to go home. And he, he never quite got there, at least during that New Deal period, at least not permanently. And so he became sort of a permanent fixture in Washington, correct? Yes, uh, although he still uh, kept his apartment in New York, uh, and at least until quite late in his life, and would, would, would commute back and forth on the train. But his, uh, his New Deal role was formalized in uh, 1935, I believe, when he became the, uh, when he got an executive job, sort of an official job, in the Interior Department with the National Power Policy Committee. And that's when he worked on a, an important bill at the time called the Public Utilities Holding Company Act. And, and what were some of the uh, major legislation or policies that uh, Cohen helped to pass? So he wrote or co-wrote the Securities Act of 1933, which was the first federal attempt to regulate the stock markets. Then the 1934 Securities Exchange Act, which established the Securities Exchange Commission. It's still been modified, of course, over the almost now getting close to 100 years, but it's still good law, the, the, the Securities Exchange Act. And he was a major contributor to that legislation. Then he wrote the Public Utilities Holding Company Act of 1935, which was an attempt to regulate this system of holding companies, which in turn owned lots of uh, other holding companies and owned even more holding companies and eventually owned electricity and other public utility companies. And it was a, a major issue at the time in terms of uh, both making sure that people had power, but also regulating the financial transactions. And uh, in that, by the way, we may come back to this if you'd like, but in that he was uh, his, his antagonist in, in, in that legislation and in the subsequent Supreme Court case was Wendell Wilkie, who was also from Indiana and uh, who ran for president in 1940. So they had an interesting relationship there. And then I think the piece of uh, the activity that probably was the most important thing he did alone, if you will. I think all of that would probably have happened in some form without him. As a biographer, you sort of wonder what would have happened if you know, Ben Cohen had not been there. And there would have been some form of, of Securities Exchange Act and Public Utility Holding Company Act, perhaps different, but nonetheless, it would have been there. But in 1940, when uh, Britain uh, was under siege, uh, Cohen almost single-handedly pulled off what was known as the Destroyers for Bases Agreement. And that's when the United States traded 50 old destroyers to the British in return for the right to use various naval bases throughout the Atlantic. It was important in its own right. It was more important as a symbol that the United States, as early as 1940, was going to be behind the, the British war effort. And it was the precursor to the Lend-Lease Act. And he was the only person in Washington who thought it was legal to, to do that, because it seemed to have been barred by several federal laws, but he managed to find a, a legal argument that would work. He wrote the, uh, the uh, uh, he didn't write the agreement, but he wrote the legal argument that, that allowed that, that to become the policy of the United States. So I think that was critically important. And he went on to a, 
a fairly significant role then from then on in, in the foreign policy realm during the, the Second World War and, and even after in the Truman administration uh, and in the 50s at the UN. How did having a family that was born in Poland shape um, his worldview uh, at the beginnings of the Holocaust and, and Kristallnacht within the Roosevelt administration? So, of course, a biographer only has access to what is still in the record. So I feel like I'm, in a, you know, in, a, in a, a legal case, I would say, you know, sort of there are things I can demonstrate and there are things that I just don't know that would sort of be not proven. I, I didn't find any evidence that I would say that, that his uh, Polish background or Eastern European Jewish background really was what motivated him in terms of his involvement with foreign policy uh, or with the uh, Second World War. But he was very much involved in the American Zionist organization and in the American Zionist movement. And that came about because of the gentleman I mentioned before, Judge Julian Mack, his mentor. He clerked for Julian Mack, and then Mack became the president of the uh, American Zionist organization and was in Paris uh, for the peace talks, for the uh, discussions of the Palestine mandate. And Cohen went with him as an advisor. Felix Frankfurter was there as well. And uh, that experience in Paris, uh, working with the Zionists, working with refugees uh, uh, in the 1930s, uh, people he met there, a woman who he was extremely close to, I don't think in a romantic way, but, but a woman who was British. Uh, he, she was a secretary at the time. They became lifelong friends. Uh, so he had a kind of a connection to Europe and to European Judaism, European Jewry, that, that drove him to want to be involved, to help, to do something. And um, that resulted in, I think, a very passionate interest in the refugee crisis in the 1930s, particularly the Jewish refugee crisis. Also, I think it, it contributed to him wanting to, uh, to just do something. And, and he ended up in England briefly as uh, at the U.S. Embassy in London, although that, that didn't quite work out. He didn't do very much there. Um, but he ended up at the War Production Board. And so he did have a very important role in, in getting America into the war and in, in successfully waging the war effort. He played, he certainly did his part. And I think that connection came more from the subsequent experience than from his, his family background per se. At least that's my that's my assessment. He was um, the, the the questions of the Holocaust policy became very controversial, of course, especially later. And uh, he was in the White House during the the Second World War. The Office of War Mobilization was housed in the in the White House, and so he was right at the center of things. And he was asked in the nineteen sixties why. Roosevelt didn't do more to help the Jews, uh, for example, bombing the, 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 the railroad lines to the camps, uh, et cetera. And Cohen's response was, we had to win the war. We helped the Jews by winning the war. That, that was, that, that's all that mattered. And that's very hard for, I think, for modern people to hear because uh, I think we, 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 it would have been nice to hear or one wants to hear perhaps more emotional engagement. In, in, but, but I think he... He was passionately involved, and yet the way he did it was to serve the war effort.
primarily. And uh, what would you say was Cohen's role in the Potsdam Conference after the war? Well, again, it's difficult to say. What, what was interesting doing this biography is that, and I think it's very important for this reason that, that and I wish historians of political scientists and others would, would do it more, is that Cohen was a, an advisor to Truman and to the uh, Secretary of State uh, at the Potsdam Conference. So he was not the principal player. And of course, you find that Truman said things and, and other participants in the conference uh, did things and said things and, and, and argued things. And Cohen was one of a number of people who were uh, sort of advising in the background. And so it's, it's very difficult to sort out exactly what he did versus what someone else did at many moments in his life, including the Potsdam Conference. My, my sense is that he was not a fundamental driver of the conference. In other words, I don't think he was. I said before, one asked the question, if Cohen wasn't there, what, what would have been different? And my sense is that, uh, not that he didn't play a significant role, but it's difficult to tell exactly what it was. And uh, probably it was more in line with what other advisors and the principals uh, were doing at that conference. To give you an idea of sort of, he was at very close to the center of power, but it was uh, uh, on the way back from Potsdam on the on the ocean liner coming home that he heard about the atomic bomb being dropped, and that's the first he'd heard of it. There's no indication that he knew that, so he wasn't he wasn't at the very center of power. He was kind of right adjacent to it. How was his relationship with? Truman versus his relationship with Roosevelt? I think he was, tip he had a relationship uh, with, with both men. I think he tended to have more direct involvement with Roosevelt because when he was in the Truman administration, he was in the State Department. He was uh, the counselor to the State Department. And so that was a more uh, staff role to the Secretary of State. And so I think in the nature of things, he wouldn't be in direct contact with the president. The, the contact with the president would be through his, his boss who worked for the president. But when he worked uh, with FDR, especially in the early days, he, things were much more open. It was much even, even compared to, certainly compared to the State Department, the work he was doing in the early 1930s was much less bureaucratic. There were many fewer players. And so he would have had more direct contact with uh, with with FDR, and then he did work in the White House directly uh, during the world, uh, Second World War. So, I think he had more personal contact with with FDR. But they weren't close by any means. And in fact, FDR, uh, in some ways, he, in some ways, FDR used him. He used just about everyone for uh, to get what he wanted. One example: there was a provision in the Public Utility Holding Company Act, which, which became known as the death penalty provision. And that was a provision which would have allowed the U.S. government to, to literally uh, close down a holding company. That was the ultimate sanction. They could actually just abolish it, just get rid of it. And they called it the death penalty provision. And Cohen was opposed to it. He wrote an initial draft of the bill that didn't contain that provision. Then uh, FDR insisted that he put it into the later version of the legislation. And when he did, it became extraordinarily complicated and, and extraordinarily con controversial. 
And there were uh, big fights over it. And finally, FDR gave in and basically said to someone, oh, I never wanted that in the first place. That was that was Ben Cohen's idea. And that was very typical FDR and the way he manipulated people and sort of played people off against each other. So I don't think they had a very close relationship in that sense. He he wanted to go to London at, at the outbreak of the war. As I said, he had he had friends there and was was very, very much wanted to be involved in the cause. And so he went to Roosevelt and he at that time asked him in a very personal way, I really want to go there. And, and FDR did find him money uh, to, to send him there. In other words, uh, in other words, found him money within the White House budget to send him there. And um, uh, unfortunately, they never clarified what his job would actually be. So he, he was there for three months and came home. But he did have a relationship with FDR, but I don't think it was super close. Or, and, and I think less so with Truman even, although perhaps in later years, uh, he, he had more involvement with Truman during the, uh, during the days he worked with uh, the uh, United Nations. Although Eleanor Roosevelt, again, would have been probably his primary contact there. Now, given that he was sort of at the early days, the early thoughts of what the UN would be, and I know this is playing a little bit of, you know, post post factual information, but how do you think Cohen would see how the UN turned out? Did it fit his vision of how the UN would be at the time that it was formed, or do you think it was something very different from what he saw it, it to be? I think, I think he would have been disappointed in the UN. I think probably even in his own lifetime, he, I think you can say he was a bit disappointed in the, in the UN because I think he was very idealistic at the time. And, you know, the, the UN planning began literally in the middle of the war. And there was this uh, tremendous sense at the first UN meeting that this was really the something something new, and there was a, a sense of euphoria at the end of the war. You know that that phrase, "United States of Europe," uh, just in a different context was was you, Churchill used it, he didn't invent it, but you know that that there was the beginnings of the European what became the European Union. This idea that Europe was never going to fight another war, we were going they were going to unify, and and there was an even larger sense of that same sentiment that Cohen shared that that the UN really would be a place where the, the world could figure out its, it, it, its difficulties and um, solve its conflicts uh, without, without war. And certainly without, uh, later without nuclear weapons. He was a great advocate for disarmament, uh, nuclear disarmament. But obviously it didn't work out that way. And it, it honestly didn't work out that way from very, very early on, uh, particularly with the advent of the Cold War, which, which I think he was... Um, um, Unusually, among his circle, he was not a big cold warrior. I think he uh, he felt that 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 was a violation of this kind of spirit, a, a potential spirit of cooperation that that was there. But he got very frustrated, even during his his times in the at the UN in the fifties, and during the the later uh, stages of his life, with the way international politics went. Vietnam was a great. Uh, frustration for him. He opposed the war very early on. So I think he would have been very disappointed that the UN has has not functioned in the way he hoped it might. It seems a little naive from a modern perspective. Perhaps we're cynical now 
that we might think that that it was hopeless, a hopeless idea, but but he and others shared it that this really was the start of something wonderfully new in, in international relations. Um, you know, diving in a little bit more into the Vietnam War um, and being one of the earliest opponents, what what do you think really drove his stance on the issue besides idealism? I think he thought the war was just a mistake. It was just uh, just just a really bad idea. And I think, in retrospect, you know, one can see the the war sort of spiraling out of control over the the period of the the Kennedy administration, and then obviously in the Johnson administration even more so. And uh, Cohen was was not a big fan of of LBJ. But even before that, I think he thought that there was no clear strategy. I think he was very prescient about his views on the Vietnam War. I found them to be just way ahead of their time. It's not that anything that would surprise uh, or, or, or that uh, anyone who studied it or anyone later on who was a, a critic of America's role in the war, there was no clear strategy, no clear victory conditions, uh, etc. But I think Cohen saw all of that very early on. And so in addition to being, in general, an advocate, advocate of peace and someone who wanted to, to kind of move away from the, 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 the concept of war, whether hot wars or cold wars, um, I think he just found this to be a, a folly that um, uh, he, he opposed very strongly. Would you say that anti-Semitism played a role in denying Cohen's advancement during his career in the government? You know, it's very difficult to say. I I don't, let me put it this way. Um, it does not, anti-Semitism does not explain why Cohn didn't get as high in the government as other Jews in his circle. So obviously, uh, Louis Brandeis uh, was uh, uh, the first uh, uh, Jewish Supreme Court justice. That was uh, when Cohn was still very young. Um, but Felix Frankfurter did, did become a justice, and of course many other other Jewish uh, uh, or very, several other Jewish justices. Um, there was talk of Cohen uh, for a Supreme Court appointment during the Kennedy administration, but I think he was considered too old by then to do it. He turned down a federal appellate judgeship at one point, just said he wasn't interested in doing it. So I think there were pathways for Cohen. I think once he got into the foreign policy realm, it was there probably aren't examples of, of of really prominent Jews at very high levels in the foreign policy establishment until later on, uh, after even after his death or or certainly late in his after his retirement at least. Uh, but I think the factors that kept him from advancing higher were more personal than they were uh, uh, religious or anti uh, a result of anti-Semitism in that sense. He, uh, he was very shy. He was very uh, unwilling to sort of put a, advance his own case, put himself forward. Um, and so he ended up always working for somebody, always being somebody's aide and advisor. One of the things that, that struck me, and I remember when I was writing the book, just it, it's suddenly occurring to me, he was always known as one of Felix Frankfurter's quote-unquote boys in Washington. Again, he came to Washington in 1933, and and the press, you know, along with others, the press regarded him as one of 
Frankfurter's boys. And he was one of the young men who went to Washington. And that sense of his youth was constantly a theme. And it just suddenly occurred to me at one point, I think I was around the same age at the time, that, that he was uh, almost 40 years old. He was 39 years old when he arrived in Washington in 1933. Uh, so by 1943, he's 50. And he's, he's uh, I think that sense that he was young was a kind of proxy for the fact that he acted as always somebody's young aide. He always worked for somebody. And it frustrated him because he, he did want more recognition. He did want positions that were, that were higher up. The job he wanted, which he eventually got, was counselor of the State Department. That kind of shows you where his ambitions were. Um, and um, uh, there may have been anti-Semitism involved in delaying that, but eventually it happened during the Truman administration. And what would you say is the longest lasting legacy of Cohen? Well, I mentioned before, but I, I do think that the Destroyers for Bases Agreement is one of the most significant, but probably underappreciated moments in the development, both of the war effort in the 1940s and in the development of executive power in the United States. Because it is sent, and, and it was completely his, uh, uh, not his idea, but he was a, a fierce advocate of sending these boats, these ships to the British. Uh, Winston Churchill regarded them as a matter, or said at least that he regarded them as a matter of life and death to have these 50 old ships that could defend the channel from a potential German invasion. There's some disagreement among historians whether Churchill believed that or whether he was using it as a way to kind of rope the Americans more and more into the war effort. But either way, Cohen adopted it very strongly, uh, advocated for it, and when it appeared to be uh, uh, an act that was um, uh, illegal under existing U.S. law because Congress had very strongly regulated these, these old, the disposal of military equipment, Cohen found a very clever legal argument around it. And it, it's, it's not very convincing in the sense if you read it carefully, but it was convincing in a public relations sense. It, it looked plausible. And he mounted a public relations campaign to get other prominent lawyers. He stayed in the background, but he wrote a letter for the New York Times that, that other lawyers signed, more prominent lawyers signed. Uh, and he... Uh, wrote the memo that eventually convinced the attorney general to allow it. And so it, it really marks a, a kind of watershed, um, not in the sense of, of the presidents hadn't used their, their executive power in times of crisis, but there were typically times of, of acute crisis. So uh, Lincoln, for example, uh, uh, calling out federal troops you know, as, as the war starts uh, or detaining people uh, and, and without... Uh, 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 after the beginning of, uh, right at the beginning of the Civil War, uh, detaining people without the right of habeas corpus in Baltimore, things like that, like emergency actions. But what Cohen did was really a policy decision at a time, a very important time, but not a time of, one might say, crisis for the United States, at least not yet. And he, he asserted that the president can act on his own, contrary to the, the, the will of Congress. And that's a model that hasn't always held up, but, but it's been used a lot in the time since. So I would, I would very much point to that as being sort of a, 
great legacy. But the other one, I think, is the, the all the financial legislation. Um, I think that he p did play a very significant role in shaping how the the stock markets are regulated. And the, the crux of that remains true to this day. And, you know, going back a little bit to uh, Cohen's uh, involvement in, in loaning uh, the ships to the United Kingdom, uh, was this precedence also used uh, for Lynn Lease? Well, Lynn Lease was enacted by the Congress. So uh, that that was not something that that was done sort of legally in the same way, but it, it, it created the momentum for it. Once you, once, I think there were two, one was legal, one implication was legal, and one was political or in terms of public opinion. And I think the connection between the destroyers agreement and Lend Lease was more the political or the public opinion that we were already committed. I think in that sense, if that's what Churchill intended, it worked because we were committed now. There were American resources, even if it was only old ships, committed to the British war effort. And um, uh, of course, FDR was, was pushing that very hard, but Lend-Lease was done by, by act of Congress. And so it didn't have quite the same aspect in terms of presidential power. And going back to the Securities Act, um, how do you think that really changed how finance fun functioned in the United States going forward um, as part of his legacy? Well, what's interesting about the financial legislation is that he was depicted at the time as a, a radical. He always was depicted in the press as this uh, far left figure who wanted to you know, destroy Wall Street or destroy the utilities industry. And the framing of these episodes was always uh, Cohen against the, the corporations. When Wilkie fought Cohen on the public utilities, Wilkie kind of became the, the symbol of kind of capitalism and uh, you know, rapacious capitalism and Cohen as this sort of radical uh, left wing uh, a, a enemy of capitalism. But the reality was much more complicated than that. The reality was that the uh, Cohen was, was quite conservative in many ways in his approach to regulation of, of, of the stock markets. Um, it was not in any sense an attempt to uh, destroy the stock markets. I don't think it's a coincidence that the markets thrived uh, after uh, the New Deal legislation was passed. It was not intended to, to, to interfere with that. It was intended to regulate it both, uh, and in a sense, save capitalism from itself. That, that, that uh, what I think the primary focus of the securities legislation, particularly the Securities Exchange Act, uh, was uh, disclosure, make sure everything was sort of open, and then to remove the kind of uh, incentives and mechanisms that allowed for these bubbles to occur, and because the bubbles were inevitably followed by, by crashes. And then Cohen himself said the other big part of the Securities Exchange Act, and the part he thought was most important, was the expansion of the power of the Federal Reserve. And so those things are still things I think we're dealing with today. Uh, I think it was successful for a long time in maintaining and serving that purpose of, of sort of removing those or preventing those bubbles. Uh, but obviously, the markets have found ways to create their own bubbles in, in other assets uh, over the years. And uh, 
I think that that's in keeping too with uh, Cohen's idea in that act that you needed to concentrate power in New York in the securities industry. You didn't want stock markets all over the country. You wanted, you know, primarily a small number of stock markets con controlled by or, or with the, uh, influenced by a relatively small number of, of firms, but then a very powerful and flexible agency in Washington to regulate. And the two would, would sort of compete with each other, the Washington regulators competing against the, uh, the, the New York traders. I think my, I'm not really in a position to to, to talk about sort of modern uh, economic or financial policy or developments, but I think it's fair to say that uh, the, that balance of power is probably not as uh, finely tuned as Cohen would have wanted it to be uh, and as it was sort of early on. And uh, one last question, uh, Bill. Uh, is your book, uh, Benjamin V. Cohen, Architect of the New Deal, still available somewhere they can uh, our listeners can find it? Well, as far as I know, it's still in print with the Yale University Press. And of course, uh, uh, it's certainly findable on all the secondary markets and the like um, and um, uh, libraries and that type of thing. But I think it is still available for, for sale uh, from, from Yale. Well, uh, Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. It's been very uh, enlightening. Uh, learning about all the contributions of Benjamin Victor Cohen uh, to the nation and to the, and, and to the world, really. And uh, I appreciate all your research and, and look forward to speaking to, with you in the future. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Likewise. Be well. All the best. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the In Jewish History podcast, a project of the Indiana Jewish Historical Society. Look us up on the web at ijhs.org.